The reality for the independent post-production house is we're all dropboxing files back and forth to create or finish out a project. And the problem is that everyone's screens now show different colors, right? We're all working on different color interpretation of the files. So talk about confusion for the colorist who has the final task of making it all play together not to mention the frustration with clients and our contractors in general. So up next is a discovery of how SpectraCal is bringing order to the chaos around this hodgepodge of displays that have such differences in color calibration in our studios and our digital creative community at large and of course our clients. Now the difficulty is how do you figure out quickly which displays need attention and then how to fix the problem so that there's greater consistency or alignment of colors with our graphics and video work. To help us understand this better, I'm going to have a conversation with Derek Smith with SpectraCal, which is the leading developer of video calibration software. And I'm just going to cut right into this pre-interview conversation with Derek because this first part really sets the stage for the rest of the conversation. Here we go. So anyway, before we get started, I thank you for doing this. I appreciate it. I know you're really busy. You guys, I mean, actually, the more I kind of pushed into to doing this with you guys, I realized, shit, man, you guys got a lot going on. <laughs> we do. In fact, I fly down to L.A. tomorrow for Cinegear. So I got invited to participate in three different booths and do some speaking and some other stuff as well. So, yeah, we're kind of in demand at the moment, which is great. You know, we, we've been trying to do that with this space now for about two, two and a half years. And now with our show that we had at NEB, people are really starting to pay attention. I kind of like to address that somehow or another. I'll get into it in the questions here. I think this rather, I got something that, that touches on is sort of the trends basically is, is that you guys have been doing post-production related stuff. But, you know, I sort of always sort of thought of SpectraCal as a little bit more of a, you know, the home theater kind of thing. Well, but something something's shifting, and I don't know what it is. And I thought maybe you could speak to it. When well, we and in fact, that. I would like to address that because when we first started going to NAB, HPA, talking about, you know, production facilities and stuff, we were warned that we wouldn't get a lot of credit because of our background. We came from the consumer space and people that come from the consumer space typically don't get a lot of credit going into the pro space. Right, that's what I'm getting at. We found that was actually quite the opposite. And I can tell the story why. It's kind of an interesting story. Um, okay. And I can do that during the interview. But it was a gentleman, one of the chief engineers at Technicolor actually thanked us for our participation in the consumer space. And for that fact, they're actually getting better gear out of the display manufacturers for what we've been able to push the manufacturers from the consumer space side. And so after we were told that story, we were no longer sort of ashamed of where we came from. We're actually endorsing <laughs> telling people about because we're telling that story. You you guys realize you're getting displaced from manufacturers because of the work we've been doing with the manufacturers for five years now from our consumer space. Well, that's so good just, too. And and the other thing, you know, and part of the, just as a other part of the setup here is that there's a lots to talk about in the topic area. We won't be going much into home entertainment. We'll be talking more. We'll be talking more post production. I think at least in a you know I'm not an East Coast West Coast guy. I'm in Austin, Texas. I'm more of a regional post production, right. smaller independent sort of thing. And from what I see, there's a lot of independence. You know, uh, I mean, I've seen it in Austin. Really, there was a lot of medium-sized companies that were doing post-production that have just simply gone out of business, and everybody went home and rented little bitty offices in East Austin, or they're working out of their house. But all the same guys, if not more, are still cranking stuff out. There's a lot of them, and that's um, and I can talk about that as well. Our kind of Good. our strategy going into the studio space is twofold. One is getting into the large studios like Technicolor. Sure, but our longer-term strategy is towards the independence, and that's why VPD is being developed. Yeah, and uh, and then the other products you have are going to lend themselves toward that also. Yes. Okay, so here we go. Derek Smith, thanks for being on the show with us here today. Oh, you're welcome. I enjoy it. Derek, um, you're the founder of SpectraCal, right? That is correct. We founded SpectraCal coming up on seven years ago. And just briefly, what was the tipping point or the inspiration for you to start a company like SpectraCal? It started when I was installing my own personal home theater. I had designed <laughs> my own speaker systems, amps and crossovers, because I've got a lot of experience from the audio side. All right. When I was installing the projection system, the, the front projection, I found that 
I didn't understand the need or the tools for basically setting that up. I knew how to set up the audio with you know various analyzer microphones and RTAs and kind of all that stuff. Um, so I assumed there had to have been tools for the video side of things. And then I heard about this ISF thing. I did a bunch of research, found that I could hire somebody to come out and set it up for me. But being kind of the techie guy myself, right. I wanted to do me it too. myself. So I started looking for tools to be able to do that and found at the time, this is you know six, almost eight years ago now, <laughs> I found that the tools were either very, very expensive from companies and very difficult to use, difficult. or you could find fairly rudimentary tools that were really easy to use but really didn't do that much. And so I thought, oh, opportunity. So I started going down that path and uh, started developing essentially a product for myself to use and found that there was a community of people um, out in the internet that felt the same way and had the same interest. And so that's kind of where SpectroCal came about. All right. Well, we have a common interest there. I'm basically an audio guy from way back and had built my own speakers, although as of late in my theater room, I purchased the ones I have. <laughs> but, um, uh, you know, back in the Klipsch Corner days, remember the Klipsch speakers in oh, the yeah. corners? Oh, yeah, I certainly yeah. do. And uh, just, uh, everything sounded like it was coming right out of a horn, yep. you know, just, just like that. Um, those were the days, right? Yeah. Mac Macintosh. Back That's back when Macintosh was the high-end receiver and uh, amplifier. So. Yep. Derek, uh, so the current product is Kalman 5. Talk a little bit about the history of that and where we're at and where we're going with that. A couple of things. Kalman 5, yes, is the fifth iteration of our, our Kalman series product. It actually started right. off... Um, as a project between myself and a gentleman named Bill Blackwell from Texas as well, um, right. back on the AVS forums for our kind of our, our own needs. It started off as a spreadsheet, Calman 1, <laughs> um, with a way to basically put numbers into a spreadsheet and display charts and graphs. Because essentially, a calibration product like this is essentially taking lots and lots of data and providing metrics that somebody can use visually. Um, you know, certainly there are there are people out there that can look at the raw data and make sense of it, but the majority of people would feed charts and graphs, you know, bar charts, kind of things for calibrating. And so it started off as CalMen One. Um, we had some interest, and this is before SpectraCal was even formed. Um, and then Spect or CalMen Two came about when I found how to be able to read data out of some of the really inexpensive uh, measurement devices, the colorimeters that were available in the day, you know, right. like the Spider 2s and the Display 2s from the various yeah. companies. I figured out how to read the raw data from those, and I figured out how to wedge that raw data into the Excel spreadsheet. Uh, <laughs> so you had the beginnings of a product that you could essentially read data, show the data, and then go tune the display f based on those metrics. But still a bit torturous. Oh, it was still very torturous. It wasn't a product. <laughs> it was more of kind of a research thing for us yeah. to use in-house. You could do it. Um, but we started getting a lot of interest. So then I went to a gentleman that I'd known previously, L.A. Heberlein. Um, yep. We had owned companies in the past before. Uh -huh. um, and approached him and said, you know, I'm working on this new project. I'm not sure if you're interested. But we're thinking about basically building a company around this concept or this product. And we knew that we weren't going to be able to do it on you know, something you sold in an Excel spreadsheet. It had to be a standalone, installable, usable product. Well, that's For essentially sure. my background as well as LA's. We develop software. And we've All developed right. software for large companies, you know, Microsoft and Cisco, Siemens. We've, uh, the previous company that we owned called Seattle Lab that we sold in 2000, had over 50 employees. I had a development wow. team of 30 engineers working on various projects for these large companies. So I basically said, you know, we need to build this product. It needs to be standalone. And so that's essentially where Calman 3 came out of, essentially mm -hmm. was that space. For, again, for the consumers, it was a standalone product. It supported a handful of these meters, but there was nearly really no way of of generating patterns easily, you know, there was still a bunch of missing pieces, and it was still kind of, kind of a hodgepodge of mix-match pieces that we put together. Right. And it wasn't until Calman Four that we basically knew what we didn't know going into Calman Three, as it, as it would always be. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, developed Calman Four with a large array of hardware support. Um, it supported over 50, 50 different measurement devices. 
probably 30 some different pattern generators, including the ones that we started developing under our AV Foundry brand, the VideoForge series. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's when the product really started taking hold into a number of industries, primarily still in the integrator space, industrial. Right. Started working on some PC products. That was our first PC product called CalPC, was based on CalMan 4 core. But we knew we wanted to take the product even bigger, meaning that there are a lot of other industries that are more color aware, more color conscious in color correction and or needs for appropriate grayscale beyond just the kind of the integrator consumer home theater space. And those would be medical. So the medical is huge for the DICOM industry. Um, Task Group 18 has very, very specific standards on how a display should be calibrated. Primarily, it's grayscale. We've got geospatial. So a number of industries worldwide are running a geospatial version of CalMAN for viewing satellite images. Oh, really? um, they have their own standards as far as what the calibration standards should look like. Uh-huh. That's probably one of our larger installs. So between those two, we knew that we needed to have a product that was more versatile, more robust underneath. And that was essentially the beginnings of CalMAN 5. Oh, okay. But then we also saw the studio space. We were very excited about. And we knew we had some stiff competition with, you know, Cinetal, Cinespace right. at the time, and then was sold off to THX. And then, uh, you know, there's another other competitors out there. Companies had their own in-house solutions and various other things. So we knew it was going to be a tough space, but that's never scared us before competing against large companies. <laughs> because our approach on how we build products, how we decide what features go in, are very, very much customer-centric driven. Mm -hmm. And so, for example, to give you to give you an example of how Studio came about, is yeah. we went to NAB four years ago. Yeah. Without a product, we had a booth, which is a big expense for a small company. At the time, oh, we were yes. only you know eight to seven people. What we had in our booth was a clipboard and a questionnaire. <laughs> what do you guys need? What do you want? Where do you see the industry going? You know, it was it, I think it was twenty to thirty questions of this to compile information. Basically, it was our market research. And we thought, what a better place to do it than at a live trade show. And we got a lot of attention um, for doing so. The next year we came back, we came back with some prototype hardware, some prototype software and said, is this kind of what you guys were thinking about? And people looked at it and said, yes, but we need more. Fair enough. We came back last year with the first version of CalMAN 5 and said, is this what you want? And they said, yes, but we still need even more. Fair enough. We come back this year with CalMAN 5.1 and said, is this what you want? And we got a resounding yes. You guys have hit the nail on the head, feature-wise, capability-wise. And where, where it came from, we hadn't really understood. The rudimentary need was to just make sure that you're sitting down at a system, whether it's in an editing suite or production bay or broadcast or whatever you may be, and make right. sure that it's right. Yeah. Quickly and efficiently. Right. Once we understood that was our goal, not just calibrate, but to basically verify and validate and certify that what you're Quick sitting check. at is running, we came up with basically our color checker addition for Calman. Oh, I see. And that was the idea behind it. You can sit yeah. down and run a series of anywhere from 20-some patches to 120-some patches and validate that a display is performing to conformance within less than five minutes. Wow. Okay. That got well, everybody's attention. So let's back up a little bit. We're going to move down into the video production topic a bit more. And what I just want to make a comment here that um, – from my observation, you guys have seen the evolution of displays and the need for calibration up front and close. I mean, that's not only have you been working on the software, but it's been in context of a changing, evolving display marketplace. And, uh, you know, part of your goal is to stay on top of those trends. And there's some fascinating topics to cover here, both in the home entertainment area, home theater calibration which we're, we're going to spend less time with uh, per se because we're going to focus a little bit more on the post-production or and also the independent digital creative 
post-production type uh, environments. Um, tell me, tell me your observations of changes in display technology over the last few years. I mean, we all know that CRTs have kind of gone by the wayside, but it has. It's not staying still. It's not just LCD or OLED. There's there's a lot going on, isn't there? I think what had happened was, and this is similar to what happened in the consumer space, but even more so in the commercial space, mm-hmm. is. You know, the Sony BVM, PVM reference monitors that everybody trusted and loved had a right. specific phosphor. And everybody knew with just a vector scope on how to set one of those up. They knew exactly how to adjust cuts and gains um, and phase and amplitude to get exactly whatever they wanted. And they were all the same. So if you sat down at your Sony BVM and you tweaked it with a vector scope, and you did work on it, and then you send it to somebody else in the chain or off to a contractor, and they had the same Sony series, you knew they were looking at the exact same content. There wasn't any question that it was different. Good point. But when CRTs essentially were stopped being built, that opened up Pandora's box for display (laughs) technologies to come in. Because there essentially was no reference, there was no leader. I know Sony's intention was to bring out OLED, basically dovetailed into CRTs, but there was about a five-year window that it was just complete open for anybody and everybody to step in to basically say, hey, I've got the next BVM. I've got a better display. I've got a display that can have that has a really, really wide gamut that can run DCI-P3 all the way down to 709 and anything in between. I've got a display that has all these analyzer tools built in. You can bring up a vector scope and a waveform monitor and, and look at digital levels and you know all this stuff built into this display. I've got a display that's 9 inches that does all of that. Well, I've got a display that's 24 inches that does all of that. I've got right. a display that's based on plasma. I've got a display that's based on OLED. I've got a display that's based on LED. I've got a display that's based on discrete LED, You know the, the individual RGB LEDs. Right. Um, all of these technologies just started coming out of nowhere, and there was no tools to set them up, yeah. validate, or even make them look similar. And so that's kind of where this kind of vacuum opened up for all of these tools, you know, namely Cinespace and uh, some other tools that came out at the time to be yeah. able to help with that problem. And as you pointed out, that problem is continuing to accelerate even today. It hasn't slowed down. There are more kind of what we term boutique display manufacturers. You know, they come up with kind of their own spin on what somebody needs in a display. Um, There's more and more of those showing up every day. And they all have valid uses and needs, but every single one of them look different. So if you're a, a production studio and you're looking to buy new equipment, what do you do? (laughs) <laughs> you know, I, I just where do you where do you look? Where do you go? What do you do? How do you um, get it calibrated? How do you, you know? Well, how do you how do you even get them to look the same? You know, that's the big issue that I here's have. colorist person A. You know, he's working on a newer display right. that he thought you know he was right. told, hey, this is the this is it. This is what you need. This is what everybody's working on. So he does. Yep. So he spends all of his time color grading on that, and then he sends it back to another contractor sends it back to the company that commissioned to do the work. And they're like, what were you looking at? This doesn't look right. (laughs) He goes, well, what do you mean? My stuff was absolutely spot on. They're like, well, we're looking at it on this display. And they're like, well, they don't look the same. What do you do? Um, So we started hearing that story again about four years ago and three years ago. We started coming to NAB and we knew that we had products that would be able to address those needs we have enough interest from the display manufacturers. We often get displays now from many manufacturers before anybody oh, sees sweet. them. Sweet. So we can you, measure you, their you response. You actually have a you have a history with the display. I mean, uh, display manufacturers. Oh yes, point, we do. Probably all the major ones. We're kind of their eyes and ears to the industry for a number of industries, and and where that came from was our consumer space. Essentially, was was the ability to go back to the display manufacturer when they wanted to be ultra competitive against each other. You know, this is back when they were just starting to put in cuts and gains in a consumer display, which is unheard of. <laughs> and then we pushed them to say, well, if you're doing cuts and gains, you should also do multipoint gamma. And they're like, yeah. well, what would people do that for? Well, so they, so they started kind of doing the one-upsmanship in that area. And then we said, well, if you're doing that, 
why don't you give us color management control so we can kind of rein in these wide gamut displays so we can hit Rec 709. And they're like, they're like, well, why would you want to do that? Everybody wants more colors. It's like, yeah, but more colors is fun when you're watching certain kinds of content. But if somebody right. wants to watch a display in its intended mode, then give us the ability to get it back to 709. So they started doing that. And so we just kept pushing the manufacturers against each other and to keep them more competitive. So we started seeing features coming out of the consumer space at a much more rapid clip than any other industry. Now, you told me a story earlier I thought was really quite fascinating. That background, that that history, and most importantly, that relationship and collaboration that you have with the, the consumer display market has actually been a very positive thing for you in the post-production environment. Is that true? Yes. And, and where that comes from is a lot of the display manufacturers, you know, there's only so many manufacturers that make glass for LCD, plasma, LED, you know, whatever the technology may be. There's only so many manufacturers that do that. Oh, really? Just two or three kind of thing? Right. And so if you look at that and you kind of know the volumes of scales of economy that go into the consumer space, where are the manufacturers going to focus first on for scales of economy? They focus on the consumer space because they're selling you know hundreds of thousands of these display models into the consumer space. They essentially take that same technology and they ruggedize it and put bigger power supplies and you know bigger chassis and plug-in cards and you know various other features. But the essential components, the glass, the front panels are essentially all the same. So if we push the manufacturers in the consumer space for scales of economy to be competitive there, that technology eventually shows up in the commercial space as well. Right. Um, and so you're starting to see displays that have just not cuts and gains, but also multi-point gamma or full LUTs, whether they be 1D or full 3D LUTs now, and oh, displays directly nice. Um, nice. for the work that we've been doing in the consumer space. And we were, we were in one of our, our large studios that we support a few weeks ago and one of their senior engineers got up and thanked us for basically pushing the consumer space that hard and getting the display manufacturers to be that competitive against each other because prior to that nothing was happening and now they've realized that because of that work those features are starting to show up in a lot of the cons uh, commercial displays now as well. Well okay so let's get into uh, one of our principal topic that you've touched on now a couple times is what is SpectraCal doing to make it easier for video post-production groups and I don't mean just the big groups that, that provide all the blockbuster films but I mean in particular the independents, the digital creatives, the ones that you know there's a graphics guy over there across the uh, town and he provides you special effects and there's the colorist and there's the editor and all that. What, what are you doing now in that space to make life better and and of course one of the things you did a while back not too long ago was the Kalman PC is that right yes we've got a number of products for more or less the independent space and I can kind of come from a, a top-down yeah and how we were approaching it is we've got our, our higher-end products you know Kalman ultimate Kalman studio which if you're a medium to larger size company that does all their own calibrations, does some own their own research, kind of figures out how they want to do things. Those are the right tools. But as an independent, you still need to be able to essentially calibrate your monitor to the same capabilities, same standards, and same ease of use. So we started coming up with additional tools. So we've got a version of Calman Studio that is targeted specifically at the the more independent guy. Okay. We've got a version of Calman called Color Checker that it's that its purpose in life is to quickly and easily validate that the system you're editing on is meeting whatever standards you told it you want to target. And, and that's that's very reasonably priced if I remember correctly. Uh, yes. Um, the introductory price I believe was eight hundred dollars. The street price is right around a thousand, and that also yeah. includes a colorimeter. Right. Which is basically unheard of. It's our SpectraCal C6, yeah. um, which we worked with X-Rite on building a number of years ago. So I'm going to kind of take a, a segue on that. Similar to what we've done with display manufacturers, we've also been pushing our measurement device manufacturer partners right. for better devices. Um, if you go back five years ago, ten years ago, 
you had to have $20,000, $30,000, $40,000 worth of gear to appropriately calibrate a display. It was very expensive. It was very tedious. You certainly didn't take it in a field. You certainly didn't take it on set. Um, there was no way, you know, you had it in a lab and you carefully carried all that gear around and you had one guy that was responsible for it. (laughs) Um, but with X-Rite, we kept pushing them and kept pushing them and we're personal friends with Tom Lianza and Andy Mejia that originally started SQL Imaging a long time ago that was acquired by Greeteg Macbeth, which was then acquired by X-Rite. Um, but they're basically the godfathers of the portable, affordable colorimeter. Yeah. Um, they go way back. And they've been itching to build a new product for quite a while. And so we've been meeting with them off and on for a number of years. And then three years ago, we went to Ames Pond, sat down with them and said, we see this industry changing. We need faster, better, more reliable colorimeters that support a broader type of display right. technologies. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's no longer CRT, LCD, PCs. It's all over the place. So we've got OLEDs and we've got LEDs and we've got plasmas and, and all these creative display technologies coming out. So we worked with them and essentially they came up with a product called the Display 3. Our version of it's called the C6. Mm-hmm. And it has some very unique capabilities and accuracy. Um, every C6 that we we sell are NIST traceable from our lab that we um, calibrate against with a Konica Minolta CS2000. And that device alone, its retail is $700. If you go back even just a couple of years ago, an equivalent device as far as well, I guess it wouldn't be equivalent. An inferior device that, that prior to that would be three to four thousand oh. dollars, and so we were able to push again the scales of economy. You know, Xrite was able to sell their Display Three into a much larger space where they're selling tens of thousands of those. Um, you know, we sell hundreds a month well, yeah. versus yeah. tens of thousands, but we we're able to kind of dovetail off their scales of economy to get a meter that we can put into this space that works as well as what even just a few years ago would cost three to five thousand dollars. Derek, is the SpectraCal C6 the same as the X-Rite Display 3 Pro colorimeter? They have um, similar hardware, but we've got custom firmware and custom capability in our C6 that we'd requested specifically from X-Rite. One of the capabilities that the C6 has is it's it can be field upgradable. Um, Typically, nice. typically, what would happen with a colorimeter if you needed to add a new display technology? So, for right, instance, right. one of so for instance, one of our display partners we work with is Flanders Scientific. Yes, um, we had a, I have one of those. We had a great time with them at the show. They're one of the there. manufacturers that supports a 3D LUT inside the device. Uh-huh. They recently came up with the capability to calibrate it by the user instead of having to send it back to the factory. You know, they still offer the factory service, but they realize there's a need to be able to load 3D LUTs or do calibration in the field. Right. We added support for their display, generating their 3D LUTs, but we found that the CCFL backlight they're using in their display is got such a wide gamut, which is great, but it was different enough than the other CCFL wide gamuts that we've worked with. Uh-huh. So we have the ability with the C6 to basically create an additional display offset table type, type right. for those displays. But you don't have to send the meters back to us. You, you just update it. Right. What happens is we embed those tables and files within CalMAN itself. And next next time CalMAN connects to the device, it actually updates it with those additional tables. Oh, even better. That was so smart. Well, all right. Well, let's move back up to the top of the fork on this thing and get back to uh, post-production. So kind of back to post-production independent yeah. time. So one of the paradigms was an affordable measurement device that can be field upgradable. Yeah, so that nails it. That's mm-hmm. C6. We got that. Right. Um, the software. We've been working in the consumer space for a long time, and so we, we know how to build software that's efficient, easy to use, easy to follow. So we started developing software workflows specifically for that, including our color checker. And then the last piece that was kind of missing was the ability to generate reference patterns. So we originally, or we started developing newer versions of our VideoForge. Our original VideoForge 1 was HDMI only, primarily for the consumer space. We launched our VideoForge 2 this last winter that has SDI, and we've got a model that'll support quad SDI for 4K. 
Mm-hmm. But it's pricey. You know, it's $5,000. Um, it's single-purpose device. It's a box. And so for kind of the smaller independent guy, they're like, well, I don't want to spend $5,000 on a single-purpose device. You know, it just really doesn't make sense. Right. Um, so we took that technology and started working with companies like AJA on their card solutions, their video playback devices, including their Thunderbolt devices, and wrote a version of the video forge called the VPD, the video playback device. Yes. For people that already have these cards, which we found, you know, for people that are doing color editing, grading, production work, they typically don't always rely on the HDMI output, DVI output, or VGA output of their Mac or their PC. There's a lot of things that can happen at the device driver level that you don't have any control over. So they buy these cards. They're fairly pricey. And we thought, you know, if somebody's serious enough to go out and spend $2,000 on a playback card, then they're serious about having their display calibrated as well. Now, the, the difference here, though, on these cards or, or this, this approach to calibration, the, there's not a 3D LUT capability in the card. That is correct as of today. Um, yeah, well, yes. Well, what's going to happen is the same thing they did with our display manufacturers is we're going to work with these card manufacturers and other vendors and providers to start providing more and more capability in the hardware. Because um, you can today buy an external box. You know, there's a number right. of them out there. They work great, um, right. but, but they're pricey. Again, they're single-purpose device. Um, Thankfully, there's display manufacturers like uh, Flanders Scientific that are starting to include 3D LUTs in their display, the Dolby HDR, you know, those kind of projects. But at some point, having the ability to load a 3D LUT in the video output card um, is kind of the direction we see it going. At the moment, though, what you can do, so... Yeah, what can you do now? So I'm an independent, and I've got a AJA T-Tap on my MacBook. Okay. And I want to do video editing. And mm-hmm. so what I do is I install a copy of Calman Studio. I take my C6. I fire up the VideoForge VPD running on basically generating the, the pattern generator output on the T-Tap mm-hmm. for reference levels. I measure directly off the display that I'm, that I'm doing my editing work on, whether it's HDMI or SDI. Mm-hmm. And within Calman Studio, which we just added to it, you can also generate software LUTs now. You no longer require to have a piece of hardware, an external LUT box, to load the LUT into. There's a- well, let's t- let's talk more about this. Okay. It's getting interesting. All right. So, Keep going. So there's a number of <laughs> – well, most of the editing suite software have the ability for generating 3D LUTs, typically, yes. typically look LUTs. You know, I want a certain look or I want a certain feel of the material. So I'll create, you know, various look LUTs. I mean, that's what colors do. That's what they get paid a lot of money to do is that's come right. up with we LUTs. Have that on, that's what right. I have in Resolve. That's, yep. that's what yep. they do. But they can also load up corrective LUTs. Well, yes. great. So we'll load up one of these software corrective LUTs that we generated in Calman that essentially just gets tagged in the video pipeline on the output before it goes out the card within the editing suite itself. And so... For a reasonable price and a portable editing workstation, you know, minus a larger display, but, you know, the MacBook right. Pro or, or whatever you're running on, you can put together an editing suite that even just a few years ago didn't even exist as far as editing tools. And so I think that's opened up the opportunity to a lot more independence to be able to start work as an independent because there, so- these tools are starting to come out. So this is kind of the heart of what I was going for. Now let's let's just retrace this to make sure I got all the uh, pieces in the in the workflow here. There's there's the updated studio uh, version from Calman Calman Five that now has this ability to uh, come with VForge or 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 are those two separate things? They're two separate things. So the Calman yeah. Studio with software LUT and color checker capability, basically Calman Five One that we just released at NAB, yeah. the VideoForge VPD is a separate piece that you buy add-on um, to that. Uh, okay, and you need that to generate the patterns, but the, but the Kalman uh, 5.1 actually generates the LUT, which then sort of pops out at the end, and then you, you import that into your, may it be your editor or your color grading software. Exactly. Okay, yeah. Yeah, and that, so you, you in uh, I, I know that in uh, SpectreCal's Kalman, there's this uh, notion of workflows, and those will all be updated and sort of walk you through that process. I would imagine, right? Yes, we've got what we call our color queue workflow, 
And essentially, it starts off at the beginning asking you, what do you want to do? And so if you target a software LUT, we'll ask you what format or which device are you targeting, you know, whether it's Pluto or Adobe or an HD-Link or a 3DL or an M3D, um, CSV, the FSI for Flanders. So it's got a long list of device output types for generating software LUTs. For LUTs that are more generic, like a 3DL, we ask you how many data points, you know, is it a 16, is it a 33, is it a 64 for a number of cube points. We ask what the bit resolution is, it is a 10-bit, a 12-bit, a 16-bit. So we ask some of those questions up front of essentially, what do you want to build? You know, what are you building in your software LUT? And then we essentially have the go do it button and we will go out and generate software LUTs based on the displays performance for correction based on that. Okay. So do you want to talk about Calman Monitor? Um, yes, Calman Monitor. Um, and we haven't completely settled on the name yet. Um, it was originally called CalPC. Its purpose was to be able to calibrate a PC. Um, there's a number of products out there that you can buy from manufacturers, uh, you know, Data Color X-Ray, um, right. but they're fairly narrow in focus. They're they were geared towards kind of the the low end kind of home person kind of you know photographer kind of market. Um, and we know that a lot of people are you know buying a MacBook Pro with a Retina display. You know, right. it has a lot of capability. And so we're building a version of Calman specifically to be able to calibrate the display built into a laptop or display connected to a laptop via the HDMI VGI, VGA or DVI output. Oh, nice. Both. And so you don't have to have an uh, SDI or HDMI kind of monitor kind of setup. You can do just the display on the laptop. It's on the PC or Mac or what, how will that work? PC or Mac. I mean, our original CalPC product was targeted at the PC market for, you know, right, called CalPC. Cal right. But we realized that the bigger space for professional photographers, for um, videographers, cinematographers that are doing their own work, independents, that they're probably going to be running on Mac operating system versus Windows operating system. And we knew that a number of years ago. And so we've been kind of incrementally phasing in various Mac pieces to be able to address that. The current project name for what we're working on is called Calman RGB that is for Mac and PC. Um, and in fact, that's what I was just testing um, this morning is, is pieces of that. And so it's going to roll out in incremental pieces. So the first piece, in fact, the piece that I was testing this morning was what we call our profiler and our generator on the Mac side. So you install these Mac tools. They install as a system tray application. They run in the background. And they listen on a Ethernet socket, so we can connect to them either locally through localhost or remotely from another computer or across virtualizations. Yeah. Um, so if you're running virtualization, you can connect across those as well. Um, and they're single purpose. The purpose of those are the generator side of it has nearly the same capability and power as all of our VideoForge products. In fact, it's based on similar code base, as including the VPD. Um, so it can generate windows of any size, nice. of any bit, combination, you know, all the patterns. Yes. It can load up a handful of static images as reference images. So, so it has all the same power capability as, you know, our, our higher-end generators. Right. The second piece of that is what we call our profiler. And that is the piece that manages DDC for displays that support DDC control over the HDMI, DVI, or VGA connection. It also supports the lookup table within the video card itself. That's one piece of the component. And most importantly, the ICC component. And we tie all three of those together as a profile, is, is what we call it. So if you're calibrating a Mac, we go through, and the first step that we will do is we will basically manipulate the lookup table in hardware directly to give us whatever nice. white point target we were shooting for, if it's D65 or whatever it may be, and the gamma target that we're looking for. You know, if you're looking at a power curve for 2.2 or a BT1886, whatever it may be. So, so we will manipulate the lookup table directly in the video card 
From that, we take that data and then we go read the rest of the display's profile to generate an ICC and then we write the ICC profile back. Oh, well, this is actually going to be what we've all been hoping for on the independent side then. Yes. We can also support multiple profiles. So if you have a display that's capable of hitting DCI P3 or even wider, Adobe RGB or whatever it may be, yeah. but yeah. you want to edit 709 content, of course. Um, we can support multiple profiles. And so you can, you can add profiles as needed. And that little tray app that's running, it's as easy as going up and saying, load this profile, load this profile, load this profile, load this profile is how it's designed. And so you can have as many as you want. You can have different, you know, different gamma curves, different targets, different looks if you wanted, um, different displays. So it gives you a lot of flexibility and capability as far as how you set up and use your editing suite with displays that are directly connected. Derek, on your website, you have a blog post there that talks about SDI HDMI converters that actually preserve the signal. And you, you make reference that um, some of the more well-known converters uh, don't keep the integrity of the signal or preserve the signal at all. Is, uh, is this something we need to be concerned about with regards to your products? And, and what does all this mean exactly? Well, the idea, um, we started hearing about this problem a couple of years ago when people were looking for solutions to either take an SDI signal, run it to a lesser expensive HDMI display, or take the HDMI output of some device, you know, Blu-ray player or a generator or something that um, they needed output and then send it over SDI into, you know, other video streams and, and uh, monitors. And, and we started hearing that people were having concerns about the levels that they were getting, that they weren't matching up or they didn't look like. Um, and so we went out and got a hold of most of the devices out there that convert from one way or the other, either SDI, HDMI, or HDMI, SDI, yeah. and started testing them and found categorically just about every single one of them will do one of three things. They either compress the range from full down to simply legal. They clip the range from full to simply legal. Or the worst case is they would actually shift it up. So they would take you out of simply uh, or, or full and then simply legal black level, but then shift the upper range. And so we thought, well, this is really odd. You know, they're, they're supposed to be converters. And typically, by the <laughs> definition of a converter, they're supposed to be passive. Right. You know, and, and I know these aren't just an electrical, you know, mechanical converter. They've got electronics inside of it. Yeah. We thought, how hard can it be to, you know, take a signal in and just put a signal out and preserve it? Um, and so what we found is we talked to a number of the manufacturers, and they said, yes, that was the intended purpose, was to typically compress the range. And when we thought, well, that's kind of an odd thing to do. And they said, often what happens is in the SDI environment, when you're moving the signal around, there's a lot of older devices that just didn't have the ability or weren't set up to move a full range signal around. Okay. So how they got around that was to compress the range and expect that the user knew this and that on the other end of that compression, whatever they were hooking it up to, they were responsible for expanding it back out. Yeah, right. <laughs> and they said, the people that were familiar with equipment and had the ability to go into a display saying, you know, take a compressed range and expand it and, you know, these other things, it actually does work. But the problem for us was not a lot of people knew it. They were frustrated that these things were doing that. Right. So we went back to the manufacturer and said, can you give us an option to do legal versus full, compressed versus not. And most of them said no. And the reason for that was the lesser expensive converters are typically based on just a chipset. Right. And the chipset is what it is. There's nothing you can do about it. It just is. So we started approaching some of the more, uh, some of the manufacturers that have more custom type hardware. Mm -hmm. And we found a couple of them. One of them we started working with and said, can you do this? And they said, well, let me think about it. And a couple of weeks later, they came back and said, yes, because all of ours is FPGA-based. So instead of having a chipset that we're relying on doing the conversion, the we actually program. do it all in FPGA. Yes. So, so basically, it can be updated. You can put new firmware in these devices. Nice. So we said, can you give us an option to preserve the signal all the way through? And then we had to tell them the story. The you know, of why. And they're like, well, but everybody else compresses. And it's like, no, 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 that's fine. But we need an option to preserve it. And so far, we've gotten one manufacturer to be able to do that for us. 
And we list that information on our website for anybody that wants to go into the gory details about it. So basically, the takeaway story from that is, if you just grab an off-the-shelf converter, you have to understand, one, it's probably going to compress, two, why you may want compression or you may not want compression, and it may not be the right option for you. So what about these, the AJT tap or the Blackmagic Mini, whatever it is, I just forgot the name of it. Did they Go yeah, ahead. it's the Black Magic Monitor. Yeah, <laughs> they did. I'm surprised they didn't come up with a more creative. They just call it the Black Magic <laughs> Monitor. I'm like, yeah. okay, it's kind of a, it's actually a really cool box. Mini monitor. So the T tap, yeah. yeah, right. So the T tap from AJA, which has an SDI output and an HDMI output, and the Black Magic Monitor, which has a HDMI output and an SDI output. Um, those devices are programmable. They have for updatable firmwares, and the manufacturers from both those companies give us a low-level interface to be able to talk to the device to make sure that when we're using them as an output device or a reference signal generator, we can get the correct levels out cool. of them. Cool. All right. That's what I wanted to know. I saw that and I thought, well, now I'm kind of worried. Okay, this makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And and the product that we're building called the, the VideoForge VPD or the VideoForge playback device that will use these as a, as a signal generator um, we're starting to build all the documentation because I've got you know all the cards from Blackmagic and AJ, um, <laughs> the PCIe-based cards as well as the um, the, T uh, the Thunderbolt-based devices. Yeah. And so we're testing the outputs and then documenting. You know, if you want the, if you want an output like this, then you have to go into their configuration software and enable this, disable this, or set it up this way. So we're starting to build quick start guides based on each device, so that when people are using our software, they can basically go in and they know how to configure it properly. All right. Great. So for thinking of this in kind of a story form, let's say I have a community of 20 some odd people I work with throughout Austin and I can now sort of uh, either have them come by here or I can go by their place and you know, all the ones that I'm you know working with on a consistent basis and say, you know, give me a spot of time here. Uh, uh, I can calibrate all the machines that you're using that are, have files on them that you're sending to me and and we'll be fairly close won't be perfect but it'll be much closer is there some software i load on their machine and leave on their machine i guess you made reference to that already but yes it's uh, a piece we're calling client three client three um okay. and that's going to be its its official name when it's released is called client three and that and client three has the two pieces built in it has the reference generator built in and then also the profiler um and that piece stays resident so you install that piece you leave it on their computer right it listens on sockets, so you don't even have to have any of other any other pieces of CalMAN installed on that computer. So you can essentially calibrate it remotely in the sense that the you know the computers don't have to be physically connected, but obviously you still have to have a meter on that display. So they they have to be in similar location, not remoted location. So that gives you the ability to essentially, as as, as you were talking about, go into a facility that has a number of editing suites running on on Macs and install Client Three on them. Go around, calibrate each of them, create whatever profile they need for each of those displays, a little bit of training to show them how to toggle between the various profiles that they need, and they're up and running. So what do you think would be an appropriate independent, uh, for, for this kind of environment, let's say, smaller environments, an appropriate probe for that? Uh, I mean, would you, uh, would the one you were mentioning uh, be be useful as long as you sort of send it in once a year or something like that or do you to do it right do you need like to gets complicated it kind of it does get complicated and it's kind of a double-edged sword answer versus question um yeah. so the c6 is very very capable i figured yeah <laughs> um and and every device that we get in we measure its spectral response in our reference displays we've got in our research lab and also our reference lab we've got a, a number of reference displays that we use mm -hmm. for targeting of different technologies and so anytime we come across a new display type or newer technology that we see is coming out, we'll measure its spectral response to see yep. if it's very different. And that's what we found with Flanders. They were different enough for what they're doing that we felt it was necessary to, to shoot a target specifically for what we're calling wide gamut P3 versus wide gamut consumer, which kind of meant, you know, two different things. So if you know that the displays you're calibrating are of a known quantity. Um, you know, they're fairly, you know, it's a retina display or it's a Panasonic plasma or it's a Dell monitor or an HP 
dream color or, you know, the things you would normally see that, that we know we've already shot and we've got reference displays for, the accuracy of the C6 is very, very high. And so that would be the appropriate device. Now, if you're going into a, a new place that just acquired some new OLED that we haven't measured yet or some newer technology that has newer filtering in the LCD itself, then you'll probably need a higher-end system, um, a photo research or Konica Minolta that is a spectral-based measurement device versus filter-based that can, that can tell the difference between those. But at some point, we'll add those to the C6 as well as we go along. Right. Well, so what do you think is going to occur in the next 12 to 24 months in display technology? This is Actually, this has already started happening. Really? I'm going to take a slight segue and give some backstory on yeah, what absolutely. has happened. Yeah. And we can actually talk about this public now. It was a research project that we were doing for almost two and a half years that we weren't able to talk about. So two and a half years ago, we were contacted by SVT, Swedish Television, ah. massive company in Sweden. You know, they, yeah. they run all of their television. They were switching from Sony BVR, BVMs, you know, their beloved BVMs, over to a, another manufacturer that had a wide gamut CCFL panel. Ah, they were using, they knew how to calibrate. They were comfortable with our tools. You know, they had highly capable measurement devices. They would sit down and measure both displays and they look different. And they're like, <laughs> and they're like, well, how can this be? Can you send us a Klein K10? Sure, we sent them over. Can you get us a photo research? Sure, we can. Can you get us a Konica Null to CS2000 as a loaner? Absolutely. Oh, so we did. And they said, after they measured with the 2000, they said, that's great. They still look different. And we're like, what? How can this be? How can this be? And everybody's like, well, it's got to be metamorism or viewing angle. Right. You know, exactly. it's CRT versus LCD. And we, we thought, no, it can't be that. The engineer that I'm talking to is highly confident, well-educated, knows exactly what he's talking about. And I'm trusting his judgment when he says, it's not subtle. One is white and one is green. And I'm like, and I'm like what do you mean green? He says, it's green. I'm like, okay, how green? He says, it's very green. I'm like, that, that just can't be. So I booked a trip, went over there. Oh my gosh. Visited their studios. And within 10 minutes, looked at what he was doing and went, you're right. It's green. It is visibly green. What is the problem here? And so we spent a year researching this problem Whoa. to figure out what the root of the cause was. We thought, viewing angles, metamorism, you know, we started going down all these tangent paths to figure out what the problem was. And at the end of the day, what we found was the 1931 color matching function that we've right. all been using forever right, right. is deficient. Ah, in what sense? That it doesn't take into account how newer display technologies can create color. Well, wider gamut of color? Yes. So if you go back to 1931, what did they have for generating color in displays? They had phosphor, and phosphor technology back then was fairly limited. And you can tell that by their research papers if you go back when they originally came up with the NTSC specifications for color, and they had this massive gamut that they knew the human eye could, the human eye could see. Yeah. But what they actually came up with when they came up with the SEMTI standards for that was a much, much smaller gamut that the display was able to hit. Primarily in the blues and reds, the phosphors just didn't have that much energy. Mm -hmm. And a good example of this is how, how difficult it is to make red in anything. Um, red cars fade at a much faster rate. If you've ever seen a Coke can sit out in the open for a few months, it turns from red to white fairly quick. The red fades really, really fast. It's, it's really, really difficult to make something that produces red and keeps a vibrant red for a long period of time, especially phosphors. They could have made phosphors back then that made a vibrant red, but they would have burned out very quick or color shifted very fast. So it wasn't a problem back then. But then we come fast forward to today and we've got CCFL backlights. Um, which are essentially phosphor-based fluorescent tubes. You know, they take a fluorescent tube, they coat it with phosphor on the inside with various types of phosphor coatings to produce essentially a, a spectral response. In order to get to a wide gamut, they had to start pushing the phosphor technologies of even today right to the very, very limits of what it was capable of producing. And what happens is when we start to get to the very edge of blue and the very edge of red, 
the phosphors start doing some very funny things. They start producing a lot of energy versus color, mm -hmm. and they can get very spiky, even more so than, than a, a CRT did. Does this crosstalk and cause the green uh, in some well, way? Or? Yes. So what was happening was on these particular displays that Swedish television was switching over to, uh -huh. their blue had a tremendous amount of near-ultraviolet blue energy that our human eyes actually saw as blue energy. But the 1931 color matching function negated because they, that's where it was trimmed off. And so the problem comes down to color matching function deficiencies. And so we submitted a paper to SEMPTI, um, SpectraCal and myself, um, last fall at one of the SEMPTI retreats that we were just published this last April about this very topic. The EBU is working on similar response in conjunction with Swedish television. So what we're going to see is as these new display technologies come out, it's getting harder and harder to measure them, not only because they're newer technologies, it's because they're much wider gamut and they're starting to push the edge of visual perception itself. So, so did you have to change something in Kalman or in the probes or I mean, what, what did you do to... It's, it's kind of, it's still research. There is no standards yet. Okay, but, all right. yeah. But, but what we did in Kalman, if you're using a spectroradiometer, um, yeah. You know, photo research or a conic Minolta. Right. You can select which color matching function you want to use. Do you want to use the 1931? Do you want to use the 1964? Do you want to use a 2000? Do you want to use a modified 2000? There's some research ones that we put in there. <laughs> um, and we found that some of the newer research ones, and this is what we worked on with Swedish Television about, some of the newer research ones, they could calibrate their reference golden BVM how they wanted it. Right use the newer research color matching functions and get their new displays to look the same. Wow, that took a year of work from what you said, right? Jeez. Uh, almost two years, yeah, of, of figuring out what the problem was, coming up with the definition, submitting the papers to the various standards committees, getting them to recognize that it is a problem. Um, so what's going to happen over the next couple of years is there's going to be new color matching function standards. They're being worked on currently. Um, that will trickle down to measurement devices having the capability to measure these newer color matching function standards. Right. Um, and it's all because of wider gamut displays. You know, they keep pushing the visual perception model of the human eye. That's fascinating. Well, let's take a different vector from uh, color gamut to resolution here. What about 4K trend? What's your, what's your take on all that right now? I would like to have one. <laughs> um, I've seen some 4K stuff, and it is phenomenal content. It's great material. But I, I think it's going to follow along a similar path of what 3D did, you know, stereoscopic, yeah. Yeah. where you kind of got the chicken and the egg. You know, people are going to be excited about 4K, 4K display technologies, but where are you going to get the content? Right. You know, upscaling 1K or 2K resolution to 4K is kind of interesting, but you're essentially not getting any new information. You're just upscaling, right. um, similar to what happened when we are going from standard definition to high definition. So I think until there's really good available 4K content, which I know there's a bunch of companies, you know, uh, what uh, Dish is talking about, DirecTV is talking about it, Red yeah. is talking about it. You know, they're Samsung all talking about LG. Sam yeah, they're all thinking about, about it, yeah. Having playback devices, um, you know, updating Blu-ray standards that will support higher resolution contents. So I think it's going to go along a similar path. However, I think it once it starts to get adoption, it'll, it should be a similar adoption curve of standard definition to high definition, unlike going to 3D, uh, because it does provide a much more pleasing, more engaging environment than our current high definition standards. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. All right, so last question. This is more of a, that's Chris, it's also an observation that um, one of the new developments for uh, Blackmagic's uh, DaVinci Resolve 10 coming out in another month or two is the ability to add DCP output, uh, you know, transcode conversion, all that sort of stuff for theatrical releases, which is a cool thing for um, a colorist because that, you know, usually you're the you're the last step in what's going on anyway and that's a nice thing to be able to add as a part of uh, another arrow in your quiver for services you provide anyway i think it's going to be a huge increase in indie films uh, theaters as a result of it because it's you know lots of people are using resolve now 
Um, but, you know, one of the things that comes up quite often is this uh, discrepancy in, in what you have as a color reference display in for the colorist versus what actually is in the theater, you know. Um, it, it does uh, uh, the SpectroCal products, do they ever get used for calibrating theaters and uh, the large uh, theater projection systems? Um, yes and no. Um, yeah. Is that a different thing altogether? I'm just curious. Just really we've got curious. we've got industrial versions of Calman that are using being used in large projection suites. Um, primarily more private stuff than kind of commercial stuff. You know, like like the big Cineplex stuff. Those projection systems often have the capability of being self calibrated. They usually have measurement devices oh, okay. that um, come see. embedded with them or capable of them. Um, they have very advanced color management systems. They know exactly what the lamps are outputting, so they know how to easily correct them. And more often than not, they're just being corrected for light output versus color, you know, just to maintain a specific amount of light versus the color of light, because they already know what the, the quantity is from those lamps. Right, right, right. That makes sense. Well, I was curious about that. And they probably have enough information where they could loosely profile the is the lamp ages and the things shift. And, and in fact, they do. Yeah. A lot of the large manufacturers that are putting yeah. these in have that metric data because it's it's tightly controlled and coupled with the device. Cool. Well, all right. Well, I think that that wraps it up um, for what I had in mind here. And my gosh, this has just been a wonderful opportunity to speak to you in depth like this and um you get the last word is there anything you want to want to say any any uh, in, in june for instance something coming up for SpectroCal? um well we're announcing our vpd product it's going to have its official launch and release um sometime in mid-june so look forward to that it'll be on our website and our mailing um as we talked about but more important and mostly our company based on feedback we will take time to talk to people about their needs, their wants, their ideas, their issues, because that's how we build product. And so I want to make sure people feel that even though we're busy people, that we are approachable. We publish our cell phone numbers on all our business cards and all my emails, my cell phone numbers on that. Cool. People can call me whenever they want. You know, yeah. I ask people to basically appreciate my time but if they have a genuine need interest or want certainly get a hold of me um, and that's how we build our product so all right well thank you very very much all right tom thank you